Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father, we do ask a blessing. We thank you for the, uh, the occasion here, the uh, uh, conference, and we thank you for all that's going on. We do pray that you'll be with us now and um, bless as we look at a specific period in history and help us to look with charity upon all and yet to learn lessons that will be useful to us in the future, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Uh, titled this one, Costly Words and the Value of Understanding. And uh, <clears throat> the idea here is that sometimes we open our mouths and say things that end up costing us. Um, sometimes they cost actual money. Sometimes they just cost a lot of time trying to explain why you didn't really mean what it sounded like you said, something like that, right? Um, sometimes you say the wrong thing, it can cost you friends. And that's not too, uh, too fun either. We're going to look at two occasions today in which individuals acting in the capacity of profit said or wrote words which cost uh, a lot, actually. The uh, first one comes from the life of Jesus. And uh, time, money, and friends were small issues in comparison to what these words cost Jesus. He said, so the Jews answered, well, this is uh, John reporting this. So the Jews answered and said to Jesus, what sign do you show, us, show to us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But, John says, he was speaking of the temple of his body. Okay. Um, Ellen White offers some insight into Jesus' reasons for making this kind of cryptic remark. I mean, if, if I heard Jesus say that, I don't think I would have understood it. So it's kind of a, you know, one of those veiled type of remarks. And that's exactly what it was intended to be. Now, it says, Christ did not design that his words should be understood by the unbelieving Jews, nor even by his disciples at this time. He knew that they would be misconstrued by his enemies and would be turned against him. At his trial, they would be brought as an accusation, and on Calvary, they would be flung at him as a taunt. Just a side note. How did he know that? You know, how, how did, you know, what was the mechanism? And this is just a fascinating thing. I, I like to ask Jesus someday, what was the mechanism by which he knew stuff like this? You know, did he know it before he said it? Said it? You know, did he know that from reading something in the Psalms that I've never put together? You know, or was that direct inspiration? Like he'd had a vision that told him this is what's going to happen. This is what you say. This is what's going to happen. Well, I don't know how it worked. But anyhow, going on. But to explain these words now would give his disciples a knowledge of his sufferings. And bring upon them a sorrow which as yet they were not able to bear. And an explanation would prematurely disclose to the Jews the result of their prejudice and unbelief. Already they had entered upon a path that would, they would steadily pursue until he should be led as a lamb to the slaughter. And so Jesus made the comment, knowing all that, and offered no explanation. And just the words sort of hung in the air for about three years. But three years later, 
The chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. That's got to be frustrating. I mean, it's one thing to go looking for evidence and not find any. But to go looking for false testimony? <laughs> you can't get anybody to even lie about this guy. Uh, that's, that's amazing. That, to me, says something about the level of support that Jesus really did have among most of the people. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and build it in three days. Well, that's the way Matthew recorded it. Mark has something very similar. Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. This is just bad organization. I mean, come on, if you're making up a lie, get two people to make up the same lie, you know. But, hey, it was late at night, you know, they're holding the trial at an illegal time of day. It was, you know, it's, it's just, just amazing the mockery of justice that went on here. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. Well, Ellen White has some comments on that. She says, Early in his ministry, Christ had said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, just a little quick English lesson. What is the subject of the first clause there? Destroy this temple. Destroy is the verb. What's the subject? You understood, yes. Jesus was saying, you destroy this temple, you will destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Okay. So he didn't claim he was going to destroy the temple at all. It was, he was saying they would, but anyhow, that's fine. Okay. In the figurative language of prophecy, he had thus foretold his own death and resurrection. These words the Jews had understood in a literal sense, as referring to the temple at Jerusalem. Of all that Christ had said, the priests could find nothing to use against him save this. By misstating these words, they hoped to gain an advantage. Isn't that something? Out of everything Jesus, has said, Jesus had said in three and a half years of public ministry, that's, the, that's the, the only thing they could find. It says something about his ability to control his tongue. Something I need to take lessons on. The Romans had engaged in rebuilding and embellishing the temple, and they took great pride in it. Any contempt shown to it would be sure to excite their indignation. Here, Romans and Jews, Pharisees and Sadducees could meet, for all held the temple in great veneration. On this point, two witnesses were found whose testimony was not so contradictory as that of the others had been. One of them, who had been bribed to accuse Jesus, declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. Thus, Christ's words were misstated. If they had been reported exactly as he spoke them, they would not have secured his condemnation, even by the Sanhedrin. Had Jesus been a mere man, as the Jews claimed, his declaration would only have indicated an unreasonable, boastful spirit, but could not have been construed into blasphemy. Even as misrepresented by the false witnesses, his words contained nothing which would be regarded by the Romans as a crime worthy of death. Patiently, Jesus listened to the conflicting testimonies. No word did he utter in self-defense. Maybe it's that trait right there is why they didn't have much to, <laughs> to fault him on after three and a half years. 
He knew when to keep his mouth shut. At last, his accusers were entangled, confused, and maddened. The trial was making no headway. It seemed that their plottings were to fail. Caiaphas was desperate. One last resort remained. Christ must be forced to condemn himself. Well, in the end, of course, it was Jesus' own testimony that they convicted him on. The Sanhedrin, at least. Didn't really have a good charge to present to the Romans. So that's why I don't think it ever came up again to the Romans, per se. Per se. But, anyhow, um, they did use it, even though they, I don't believe they presented it to Pilate. The uh, priests did use that issue one more time. Those who passed by the cross blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple, of, temple and build it in three days, save yourself if you are the Son of God. Come down from the cross. Okay. Priests and rulers, with many others, taunted him with this false statement from the bribed witnesses. While he hung upon the cross, it was repeated in mockery by the scribes and Pharisees and echoed by the multitude. They that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. But though misstated, Christ's words were being fulfilled. Publicity was given to them, and they were made more impressive by the proclamations of his enemies. So what's the purpose of all this? What's the value? You know, if there is no value in taking a certain course of action, I don't find God taking that action. Usually, you know, God does things with a purpose. He he has a plan, a, a, a value. So what was the value in all that? Well, here we go. The payoff. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. It was for the sake of those who should believe on him that these words of Christ were spoken. He knew that they would be repeated. Being spoken at the Passover, they would come to the ears of thousands and be carried to all parts of the world. After he had risen from the dead, their meaning would be made plain. To many, they would be conclusive evidence of his testimony. So I want you to see the pattern here. Jesus said something that for three years seemed to be nothing but detriment. It just cost him. But then, in the end, the, uh, the return on investment comes, comes back, and he gained from it. Okay. Now we're going to switch over to Adventist history and a somewhat mm, somewhat obscure and uh, not commonly focused on issue that's a little bit uh, a little bit similar in some regards. A different prophet, a different issue. Need to set the uh, set the stage for this. So let's um, let's do this here. We're going to go back to 1899, and Ellen White made some comments. Actually wrote a letter, apparently, that cost her uh, a lot of trouble and pain. Like the words of Christ, this was taken up as a weapon against the Lord's messenger. Unlike the words of Christ, the real meaning and intended benefit of this comment has rarely, if ever, been considered. So we are now... What, 1899? Do the math quickly here. 100 and 
12 years down the road and I'm not sure that anybody's really focused on this to gain any benefit from it yet. More than a century has passed since the words were written. Perhaps there is still benefit to be gained in understanding the object lesson they embodied. But to do so will require a little understanding of the surrounding history. Okay. 1899, Ellen White is still in Australia. She's living over there. Still struggling to establish the work of the church down that way. But by 1899, more of her time and energy and emotional involvement was centered on Battle Creek and the problems that were going on there. It was a real drain on her uh, monumental, unfortunate problems going on at Battle Creek. The heart of the work was still in Battle Creek. That's where you would find the General Conference, the Review and Herald, Battle Creek College, and the Battle Creek Sanitarium, our four biggest flagship institutions. We're all centered in Battle Creek. But all was not well there nor with many of the men of authority in the denomination. One of these individuals who was in spiritual decline at the time was John Harvey Kellogg. In order to make this make sense, you have to understand quickly the 1890s. And all we want to focus on for our purposes right here is that at the beginning of the 1890s, was Kellogg coming out of the 1888 conference, a newly converted man looking to do good things and be a blessing to others. He establishes the, the uh, Haskell Home for Children in 1891. Um, Mrs. Haskell, I mean, well, he actually established an orphanage in 1891. Mrs. Haskell gave that $30,000 donation in 1892, and they get the building up, whatnot. 93, 94, 95, well, actually 93, he started the, the work down in the Chicago Mission. Uh, as, as a benevolent, humanitarian type of an outreach. Um, and so all this, is, all this is going on. But Kellogg at that time was being opposed by at least some members of the ministry. Ellen White says this clearly. Um, he was being given a lot of hard trouble, let's put it that way, by some who, she says, they made war upon him. Ellen White is fairly discreet. She doesn't give a lot of names. I'm not sure I know exactly who all these people would be, but uh, over time, Dr. Kellogg began to chafe under the um, accusations and the opposition that he was receiving. And by 1897, he began to just, as I read it anyhow, he began to just be just mad. And it's like... And these are my words. He never wrote this, so don't take this as a quote. But it's, it's, it's just like he said, I will show these ministers how to get something useful done. I'll convert more people than they'll ever dream of. I'll do a greater Christian work than they could ever, ever imagine. And so he began to enlarge and, and glorify his Chicago City mission. That was an unfortunate thing. It was not what he should have been doing. Uh, he had begun to neglect the very work God had given him, and instead he had taken up a work out of his own devising. Now, it says that he was especially suited to reaching the higher classes, and he was devoting you now all his time and energy to reaching the, the lowest classes in Chicago. Okay? Ellen White could not just sit by and let this all happen, so she wrote to him, and she said, The work in Chicago was presented in a vision given to me at midday. 
It laid upon me a burden which none could understand. I could not understand it. I was overwhelmed with the things presented. When I came to myself, I was like one stunned. Night after night, the picture was before me. I saw the investments you were making, the money you were consuming. Sister White, you bemoaned. Somebody has set things before you in a wrong light. No, no. Things that no one knows have been presented to me. I have been made to understand the ambitious projects that have bound up in one wicked city means, which means money, right? Money, which should have helped to work in this new world and put us on standing ground. But all the necessities of this field, that's Australia, which were kept before you seem to you of less importance than the great things you were creating. Should you carry out your own way, means or money would be drawn from the treasury to support the enterprises of your creation until the missions to which God has appointed a special work would be destitute of every facility for carrying on that work. Kellogg's medical missionary work had started out well, but when he became determined to make a great showing for himself down in Chicago, it's kind of like Nebuchadnezzar is not this great Babylon that I have built, you know, his efforts became seriously imbalanced and very expensive. You can very easily spend a great deal of money in humanitarian work. Just start handing out free food. <laughs> it's, it's easy to go through a lot of money real fast, okay? As a result, the growth of the church in the rest of North America, Australia, South Africa, had been seriously hampered. So this is what Ellen White was writing about in the spring of 1899. At that time, she was shown in vision an expensive building in the city of Chicago used for various lines of medical missionary work. Okay, so she sees this expensive building. At the time, she wrote, at the time I saw this representation, scenes that would soon take place in Chicago and other large cities also passed before me. As wickedness increased and the protecting power of God was withdrawn, there were destructive winds and tempests. Buildings were destroyed by fire and shaken down by earthquakes. I saw the expensive building above referred to fall with many others. Okay. Hmm. Alarmed at the loss of this expensive building, Ellen White wrote Dr. Kellogg immediately in regard to the matter. Now, the funny thing here is that, as near as I can tell, we don't have that letter. At one point, there were at least three copies of it. But um, it seems that all three copies have disappeared. <laughs> at least I know that in... 1907, they couldn't find any copies. And I've never seen it reprinted in, in any of the you know, reference work since. I, I've never, I should call up the estate and just ask, but I've never done that. But um, uh, anyhow, so I don't know that we actually have that letter that she, the original letter she wrote about this Chicago building, okay? Well, <clears throat> this was the letter that would be used against the prophet. Unknown to her, since she's simply working off of what she's shown in vision, she's not paying attention to what people are telling her, but unknown to her, no such building had ever been built in Chicago. Dr. Kellogg found this a convenient excuse to reject her counsel and undermine others' faith in the spirit of prophecy. For three years, the mystery remained completely unsolved. And then finally, in June of 1902, Ellen White began to get a partial understanding, at least. A Judge Arthur, he was a lawyer, had been a judge at one point or the other. He's lived in Battle Creek, and he had uh, become an Adventist and had done some work for both the sanitarium and the review. But he was out in California, and he stopped by 
Ellen White's home at Elmshaven. Judge Arthur and his wife spent a part of a day at my home. We had much pleasant and profitable conversation. Among other things discussed was the matter of the representation that had been given me of an expensive building in the city of Chicago, used for various lines of medical missionary work. I related how that when I was in Australia, I was shown a large building in Chicago, which in its erection and equipment cost a large amount of money. And I was shown the error of investing means in any such buildings in our cities. As I related some of these matters and described the building that had been shown me, Judge Arthur said, I can tell you something in regard to that building. A plan was drawn up for the erection of just such a building in Chicago. It seemed necessary to our work. It would have cost considerable money. Brother William Loughborough of Battle Creek, that's J.N. Loughborough's brother, uh, drew up the plans and several men occupying responsible positions in medical work met together to consider the matter. Various locations were considered. One of the plans discussed was very similar to what you have described. Ah, so Ellen White says, aha. <laughs> she had no idea. She'd been shown this building and then she found out there was no such building. And so now she finds out that plans had been drawn for building. Okay? This new information helped clear up much of the perplexity in Ellen White's mind about the instruction she had received. In time, the Lord gave further clarification. Some time after this, I was shown that the vision of buildings in Chicago and the draft upon the means or the expense of our people to erect them and their destruction was an object lesson for our people, warning them not to invest largely of their means in property in Chicago or any other city unless the providence of God should positively open the way and plainly point out duty to build or buy as necessary in giving the note of warning. A similar caution was given, to, uh, was given in regard to building in Los Angeles. Repeatedly, I've been instructed that we must not invest means in the erection of expensive buildings in cities. Dr. Kellogg, however, by this time, was not in a good mood for object lessons, warnings, and cautions. Okay. Now, White wrote to him, repeatedly has been shown me that in many cases you have worked upon minds to under confidence in the, undermine confidence in the testimonies. After receiving a testimony of reproof from me, you have said, somebody has told her these things, but they are not so. Over and over again, you have told others how I once sent you a testimony reproving you for erecting a large building in Chicago before any such building had been erected there. In the visions of the night, a view of, the large, of a large building was presented to me. I thought that it had been erected and wrote you immediately in regard to the matter. I learned afterwards that the building which I saw had not been put up. When you received my letter, you were perplexed, and you said, Someone has misinformed Sister White regarding our work. But no mortal man had ever written to me or told me that this building had been put up. It was presented to me in vision. If this view had not been given me, and if I had not written to you about the matter, an effort would have been made to erect such a building in Chicago, a place in which the Lord has said that we are not to put up large buildings. At the time when the vision was given, influences were working for the erection of such a building. The message was received in time to prevent the development of the plans and the carrying out of the project. You should have had discernment to see that the Lord worked in this matter. The very feature of the message that perplexed you should have been perceived as an evidence that my information came from a higher source than human lips. Now, she's not explaining all the 
detailed history. I'll try and fill that in a little bit. But you know, he should have known the way it came to him, the part that confused him. He should have known, she says. But instead, you have over and over again related your version of the matter, saying that someone must have told me a falsehood. Well, Dr. Kellogg's point wasn't that someone had told Ellen White a lie. His point was that she had believed a lie and wrote it out as a testimony. That's what he was saying. Okay. In other words, with that point of view, Ellen White's testimony was a myth. She was just plain wrong, and John Kellogg was right. Well, okay. As you may imagine, if you've uh, had to work with people to any great extent, some people believed Kellogg, and some people believed Ellen White. What no one seems to have noticed was that the whole episode was an object lesson for our people. What's an object lesson? The point of an object lesson is not the thing itself, it's something down the road, right? This is what she had said. I'll go back to the statement there and look at it one more time. Looking for the point of the object lesson. I already read this, but just reviewing here. Sometime after this, I was shown that the vision of buildings in Chicago and the draft upon the means of our people to wreck them and their destruction was an object lesson for our people, okay? Something here that we're supposed to be learning, going on with the statement, warning them not to invest largely of their means in property in Chicago or any other city unless the providence of God should positively open the way and plainly point out duty to build or buy as necessary in giving the note of warning. Well, okay. So this much here is something the Spirit of Prophecy says time and again. Um, the idea of not building large institutions in, in cities, she says that all over the place. I would be willing to argue that we haven't followed that counsel as faithfully as we should. And I do think that's important counsel. But it's not a unique piece of counsel. She said it in lots of places. It doesn't strike me that that general counsel of don't build in cities is the point of the whole building in Chicago episode. I don't think it's worth enough to say the same thing that she'd said in, in, in a dozen different ways, to invest in the trouble that that, um, that, that comment cost her. Let's put it that way. Um, it's not significant enough to merit three years of perplexity on the prophet's part, nor would it seem like a fair trade on God's part in exchange for all the trouble Dr. Kellogg caused with his she-believed-a-lie argument. Uh, actually, that particular argument was one that Kellogg used all the way down to uh, 1947, at least, <laughs> I think it was, when um, was that? I think it was Arthur White actually had an interview with, with Dr. Kellogg and was talking to him, and, and Kellogg brought that up and says, your grandmother believed the lie about this Chicago building type thing. So, okay. One more sentence on this statement. She says, a similar caution was given in regard to building in Los Angeles. Okay, well, this is interesting. Chicago is a long way from L.A. Is there any connection between these two cities that makes this little piece of information significant? Looking for something that's more specific than just don't build in cities, something that makes the cost of these, you know, this comment and this whole episode worth the, uh, worth the effort. 
at the risk of killing all the suspense, I'm going to say that, yeah, I think there is a connection. And let's go there now. What is the connection between Chicago and Los Angeles? Okay, Need a little history in order to back this up now. You may recall that several slides back, we read Ellen White's account of how she first learned that there had been plans to put up a building like the one she had seen in vision. This happened in June of 1902. You're going to have to kind of keep some dates in your mind here as we go through this, okay? The person who told her the story about the plans for this building was Judge Jesse Arthur. He's a lawyer uh, from Michigan. As a lawyer, he provided legal assistance to the church and the Battle Creek Sanitarium. During a short series of meetings that Judge Arthur had attended out at St. Helena, he had been especially blessed by Ellen White's sermons and seems to have had quite a favorable attitude toward her right then when he visited her home and uh, talked to Ellen and her son, Willie. After hearing the story of, build, of the building plans, Willie asked the judge if he could write out the details of the episode. And Judge Arthur agreed to do so. His letter doing that was written in August of 1902. Okay? This is what he wrote. Anyhow, um, he said, My dear Brother White, I find it possible at this time to make for you the long-promised statement in reference to the action of the Board of Trustees of the American Medical Missionary College in the spring and early summer of 1899, looking to the erection of a large medical college building in the city of Chicago. The facts are as follows. During the last of May, 1899, Dr. A.B. Olson who was then the secretary of the Board of Trustees of the American Medical Missionary College. Now, just a word of explanation. The American Medical Missionary College was Dr. Kellogg's medical school in Battle Creek. Okay. So Dr. A.B. Olson, he's an Adventist doctor, he was the secretary, was prompted by Dr. Bayard Holmes of Chicago. Okay. Bayard Holmes was a famous surgeon. He was not an Adventist. He was favorable to the Adventist humanitarian work in Chicago. He helped out. He did free surgeries on occasion. And when the, uh, when the, the American Medical Missionary College actually began some instruction down there, he taught uh, surgery for several years for the American Medical Missionary College. But he was a non-Adventist. I, I would probably describe him as a nice guy and a generous fellow who helped out. Okay, So, Trying to keep this straight, A.B. Olson, secretary, was prompted by Bayard Holmes, non-Adventist, right? And so Olson urged upon the board the necessity of the medical college becoming a member of the Association of American Medical Colleges in order to give it, the, give, the, give Kellogg's College, an assured standing and position among the medical institutions of this and other countries. Okay, just trying to make this clear. It's cumbersome sentence there. Olson tells the board, he says, listen guys, we need to be a member of this organization, the AAMC, the Association of American Medical Colleges. We need to be a member of that organization in order to be respected, okay? In the furtherance of this object, Dr. Olson was appointed a delegate to attend a meeting of such association, the AAMC, which was shortly afterwards to take place in the city of Columbus, Ohio, and make application in behalf of our medical college for membership. This he did, 
and such application was laid over to be acted upon at the next regular meeting to take place a year from that time. Okay? So Olson goes to the, the meeting in Columbus, turns in an application form for, the, for Kellogg's Medical School to join this organization, and they said, thanks for the application. We're going to look at it for a year. We'll give you a decision next year. Okay? Upon Dr. Olson's return, he reported that the principal objection urged against admitting our medical college to membership was the want or the lack of a suitable building in the city of Chicago. It was then determined by the board to take steps at once looking toward the erection of such a building. A building committee was appointed and consisted of A.B. Olson, W.K. Kellogg, and myself, Judge Arthur. Dr. Olson was chosen secretary of such committee, and I was selected chairman. Okay? So Judge Arthur was deeply involved in this. He was the chairman of the committee, so he's writing you know, with some level of, of understanding. Um, now, notice what the problem was. The American Association of Medical, or the Association of American Medical Colleges said, we can't admit your college. You don't have the right kind of building in Chicago. Okay? And so that's what they were working to do, is to plan a building in Chicago that would meet their requirement of the AAMC. The committee met and immediately formulated plans for the purchase of a site and the erection of such a building. I was instructed as chairman of the committee to open negotiations looking either to the sale or mortgaging of number 28, 33rd place, which the college owned, and otherwise taking steps to raise the necessary funds to purchase the site and erect the building contemplated. Dr. Olson was instructed to procure suitable, suitable plans for the college building, which he did. The cost of the site and improvements was to be somewhere in the neighborhood of $100,000 or possibly more. The committee went to Chicago, looked over several sites, and finally settled upon one on 13th Street. And negotiations were open for its purchase. All of this took place while Dr. John Harvey Kellogg was absent from the United States. He was off in Europe studying advanced European medical techniques. Okay, It's a good thing. Kellogg learned a lot from his European visits. I'm not knocking that. After our plans were quite well completed for the going on of the work, it was thought advisable to await Dr. Kellogg's return to this country before proceeding further with the matter. I learned through others that after the doctor did return and was advised of what had been done, that he discouraged going on with the project. Just what reasons he assigned for doing so, I don't think I ever knew. I don't know if the judge is being honest on that last comment. <laughs> I can tell you why he didn't go on with the project. It's because while he was in Europe, he got a letter from Ellen White talking about this big building in Chicago. And so he comes back and he says, well, I can't build that now. <laughs> uh, there's another document that sheds some light on all this as well. It is the minutes of a meeting of the Board of Trustees of the American Medical Missionary College that was held June 19, 19 1899. Excuse me. The American Medical Missionary College was Kellogg's Medical School, okay, that operated up in Battle Creek. And there's min those minutes say this. The meeting was opened by prayer by Dr. H.F. Rand. Dr. Olson then made a brief statement of his visit to the meeting of the Association of American Medical Colleges and stated that the application from the American Medical Missionary College, this is awkward, AA. MC is the non-Adventist, the American Medical Mission College is the Adventist College. We've got to try and keep those two straight. The application was not voted upon at the meeting, but action was deferred until another year. He then emphasized the importance of securing a suitable building for the college to be located in Chicago. He stated he believed that this would aid greatly in putting the college on a favorable basis before the world 
and to secure a desirable recognition. Dr. Olson said that it should be remembered that the chief reason why the Board of Health of Illinois did not recognize our school fully was because it had not a suitable building for clinical work and instruction, and that would be in Chicago. Okay? So it turns out that the building that was never built in Chicago, the one that Kellogg used as his favorite attack on Ellen White until 1947, was actually a pretty specific item. It was supposed to provide for clinical work and instruction. What sort of building would this be? It seems to have been something familiar to both the Illinois Board of Health and the Association of American Medical Colleges, but what exactly would this building have been? And what connection does it have to Los Angeles? The only answer to these questions seems to be found in the experience of denominational leaders about 13 years later. The best account of this comes from D.E. Robinson's classic book, Story of Our Health Message. He wrote, by this time, by 1912, it had become evident to all concerned that a clinical hospital was needed to provide the advanced classes of medical students with the practical experience necessary to meet all the requirements for graduation. Robinson is talking about the development of Loma Linda in 1912. It had become evident to all that they had to have a clinical hospital. Now, it should be noted that the requirements spoken of here were not dictated by state law, not federal law. The requirements in question were those of an organization known as the Association of American Medical Colleges. That's the educational branch of the American Medical Association. And it's exactly the same folks who had been talking to the administrators of Kellogg's Medical College 13 years before. But going on with the quote. This is from Robinson now. Loma Linda and its environs did not have population enough to supply such a clinical hospital with the required number of patients. So in looking around for an area that could serve the need, the eyes of some of the brethren turned toward the city of Los Angeles. However, it was remembered that in 1901, Mrs. White had received instruction that it would be a mistake to establish a sanitarium within the city limits of Los Angeles. Would the establishment of a clinical hospital in that city be a move contrary to that counsel? It was felt by some of the brethren that the testimony of 1901 had reference to a sanitarium and not to a clinical hospital such as the needs of the medical college now required. Well, as a result of their deliberations on this issue, the leaders of the denomination, the leaders of the College of Medical Evangelists, decided to follow the advice of the Association, the American Association of Medical Colleges, and build a 200-bed hospital in downtown Los Angeles. In time, the building was named the Ellen G. White Memorial Hospital. This was a major turning point for our medical work. This one decision, more than any other, linked our medical work to the practices, the procedures, the mindset, and even the goals of the American Medical Association. I've no, found no evidence that those involved in this decision saw any application of the object lesson that had cost Ellen White so dearly. 
The accusation that Ellen White was mistaken about the building in Chicago is still current today. It can be found on any decent anti-Adventist, anti-Ellen White website. You know, <laughs> it's, it's out there, okay? The question now is, what's the payoff? Ellen White had specifically said a similar warning was given in regard to the city of Los Angeles. But 13 years later, the building that was never built in Chicago was built in Los Angeles. So, is there a payoff in the case of the Chicago building vision, or is it all simply a historical curiosity? What does it mean to us? And what should we do about it? And I leave those questions with you, because I'm not wise enough to answer those in any specificity. Thank you much. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, we thank you for those who have gone before us and for their work which provides something for us to build upon. And Lord, though in this particular presentation, I guess I have to say I, I find fault in some regards with what has been done in the past. I could wish it had been done otherwise. Yet still, I thank you for your grace and for your mercy in turning what may not have been what I do not believe was your ideal will still into a facility which has been a blessing to many. I pray that you would help us to learn the object lesson and help us to make our work for you as perfect as possible. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.